This is episode 463 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Today we'll be looking at the second requirement found in 2 Chronicles 7.14 that God says is necessary for him to forgive a nation's sin and heal their land. And as I've said over the last couple of broadcasts, if any nation needs healing, it is definitely ours. The second requirement is that of prayer. But what kind of prayer? Does it matter how long we pray or what we actually pray about? And does the spiritual condition of the person praying play any part in having that prayer answered? Or in other words, what is the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man actually look like today? There's so much we will be discovering as we dig deep into the often misunderstood topic of prayer. So join with us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We've been talking about the pitiful state our nation is in and our church is in, in the West. It only got crazier last night if you were following some of the things that were going on with the rallies and stuff of that nature, and it's not even November yet. And the antidote for all of that, a solution to all of that, of course, is this Great Awakening. I've spent a couple Sundays talking about the Great Awakening that begins when pretty much personal revival begins in a bunch of people's heart and it kind of spreads out like a wildfire and it changes homes and communities and churches and eventually nations. And the key to a personal revival and the key to a national Great Awakening is found in Second Chronicles 7.14. You remember the passage. If, of course it's an if-then proposition here. If my people, not lost people, not people who don't know Christ, but my people. So we're talking about all those people who, are, who claim to have a relationship with Christ, but then he subdivides that even more, my people called by my name. And as we talked about that two weeks ago, this presupposes taking on the identity of Christ, living the way Christ lives, having the mind of Christ. It's almost like the difference between, as the Keswick movement would talk about, or the higher life movement would talk about, a carnal Christian and a, a normal Christian, using Watchman Nee's term, or a sold-out Christian. And so we're talking about the, those people who are Christians but are committed to Christ. If my people who were called by my name will, and this is the hardest part that we talked about last week, humble themselves. I gave you 10 things we can do to humble, them, humble yourselves. And by the time I got to number three, I wanted to quit. It's very, very difficult to humble yourselves. As I was listening to the message, editing it and uh, getting ready to post it online, I was, <laughs> I was, again, reliving those 10 steps. It's very, very difficult to humble yourself, yet it's a requirement. God's not doing this for you. It's not God humbling a nation. It's not God humbling a people. It's not God bringing you to your knees and him causing that action. It's something we choose to do, to place ourselves as a meek person, as a lowly person, as Moses and Jesus were called, under his lordship. To humble themselves. Talked about that last week. This week, and pray. A lot of questions about this. And so I'm humbling myself, and now I'm praying. And seek his face. This is really hard in a opulent society because we have been taught to seek God's hand. 
We've been taught that God provides good things for us. That's pretty much all he does. We call all the shots. When we get in a jam, we ask him to get us out of the jam, and then we'll take it over from here and turn from their wicked ways. When we get two weeks talking about wicked ways, the hardest part about this, it's wicked ways based on what he said is wicked and not what we say is wicked. Living in the Laodicean church age, we cut slack for a whole lot of stuff that his word doesn't. Pretty convicting. Then after we do that, he will hear from heaven and forgive their sin. This is the people in the land and heal their land. National sin, national healing. But if you remember, we talked about the context of this. And the context was God was sending judgment. When I shut up the heavens and you get no rain. When I send the locusts and they devour your field. When I make everybody isolated home and I have this coronavirus that seems to wreck the economy and, and cause the, the worst elements of our society to be on the forefront right now. When I bring corruption to your government, to your institutions, to your news media. When I do all of these things, because of your sin and your idolatry and because you have forsaken me. Then here's the antidote. The antidote, of course, is to seek his face, to turn from our wicked ways, to humble ourselves and pray, and then God will relent that judgment. That's the context here. It is, again, an if-then proposition, and there are four conditions and three promises. If we meet the conditions, if you meet the conditions, God will provide the promises. The condition number one is to humble themselves. Condition number two is to pray, to seek my face, and to turn from their wicked ways. And then God will hear from heaven. And of course, that is important because in 1 John, it talks about that if we pray, God hears our prayers. And if he hears our prayers, he will answer our prayers. He will forgive their sin, singular, and will heal their land. We've talked about humbling themselves, and so today I want to talk about pray, about prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but if I took an honest assessment of my spiritual life and I listed on one category the things that I do well and the other category the things that I really need improvement on, the things I do well is like studying God's word and I teach a lot and, and counseling and stuff that's just natural to me. It's part of my gifting. The stuff that I don't do well, I think number one would be evangelism. And I don't share my faith near as much as I need to. Would you agree in your own life? And number two would be prayer. I pray and you pray, but sometimes do we... <laughs> like the videos that I just showed, do we sing a song or are we caught up in a moment? When we pray, are they just normal prayers? Just, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's a horrible prayer to teach a kid. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I'm scared to close my eyes now. Or, you know, we get ready to bless the food. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. So is, is that the kind of prayers we're talking about? Is it, you know, we get down with our kids and we, we pray with them in like kids' voice so, you know, they don't feel intimidated. And, and I mean, what kind of prayers are we talking about here? It just says pray. Humble themselves and pray. 
doesn't tell us what kind of prayer, doesn't tell us the intensity of the prayer, doesn't tell us how long the prayer is supposed to be. Can a 30-second prayer suffice? Lord, bless me today. That's technically a prayer. Or does it have to be like an hour? How long are the prayers? Scripture doesn't say. And what are the prayers about? Can it be about me? Lord, help me at work. Lord, help me get that job. Lord, help me have a good report at the doctor. Lord, help me be able to get my vacation time in. Let me, 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 me. Does the prayers, can they be about me and still qualify as the type of prayer that turns a nation back to God? Or do the prayers have to be somebody else? Do I have to never pray pray about myself? I'd always have to pray about other people. So I get this long prayer list of people that I have forgotten what their prayer needs were. And so since I don't know what to say, I just say, bless them. Uh, Lord, here's Frank. Bless Frank. Uh, here's John. Bless John for whatever he's going through right now. Oh, oh, be with Susan and be with, you know what I'm talking about? Is, is, that, is that the kind of prayer? I'm not making light of this, but the scripture says that we're to humble ourselves, which is intense. We're to seek his face, which means we turn everything away from our personal needs and want nothing more than just a relationship with him, to be intimate with him. We are to turn from our wicked ways by asking him what ways are wicked. And when he tells us stuff that we don't think so bad, we have to make those tough decisions in our life. Why would we assume just pray is something casual when everything else is intense? Can I pray alone? Or do I have to pray in a group? Can, can I do this in, in, in my house? Can I do this silently? Can I do this in my, you know, by standing? Or do I have to sit or do I have to get on my knees? Or, or can I just pray in my mind? Or do I have to actually pray verbally? Because I'm so afraid to pray out loud. Why? Why? Tuesday night, a couple of weeks ago, I, you know, it's a Tuesday night Bible study. And it has become that. It's always been that. Just a Tuesday night Bible study with a little prayer tacked on the end. I remember when I pastored a Southern Baptist church, a traditional church, uh, we would have Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, and Sunday school and training union. Is that what they used to call it? Training? I don't know, what is union for what? Training union. And then it's just, you know, like an evening Sunday school. And then you would have a Wednesday night prayer meeting. It's always called a prayer meeting. And it may start out with a new pastor coming to a church wanting people to pray, but people don't like to pray, especially don't like to pray publicly. And so pretty soon you add some teaching to the prayer meeting, and then pretty soon the Wednesday night prayer meeting becomes pretty much what our Tuesday night Bible study is, which is just a Bible study with a little prayer tacked onto it. So I asked the people that were here, some of you were there, what what can we do to increase our prayer life as a congregation, to be able to to pray more. And the answers that I got, and I've talked to a couple other people privately about it, all have to do with what we feel comfortable with. Well, I just, I I don't, I just, I don't feel comfortable praying out loud. Why? Well, I I just, I, I just don't. Well, do you love the Lord? I do. Do you love your wife? I do. Do you talk to her out loud? Or do you just... Don't say anything and just think thoughts and hope she hears them. Well, of course I talk to her out loud. Do you talk to her out loud in front of other people? Or do you have to just get her in a corner, just the two of you, and that's the only conversations you have? Well, of course I talk to her out loud when I'm around other people. Then what's the difference? Well, the difference is I I don't know what to say. 
Will you say the same thing publicly that you say privately? You're having a conversation on behalf of probably other people, because when you come to a Wednesday night prayer meeting in a church or a Tuesday night Bible study or the ladies that get together on Saturday and pray, you have a certain people that you're praying for to focus on those prayers. And so you're praying among other people, but those prayers are focused most of the time, not so much on you, but on other people. So why, why don't we do that? And it's not just us. It's every church I've ever been part of, and it's every pastor that I've ever talked to, all the pastor groups that I belong to, they will tell you that the biggest need they see is for their church to become praying churches. But they don't. So why don't we sit everybody in a circle so that instead of looking at the back of your head like a lecture, so we come to church and it almost looks like a performance and then a lecture. So we have the band up here and the singers up here and they're singing to you and you're sitting there and looking over the person in front of you at the back of their head like you would if you went to a concert. And then the pastor gets up here with a PowerPoint presentation and he presents to you some facts and we're taking notes because it's kind of like school, kind of like in a lecture and that doesn't lead to prayer and spiritual intimacy. Well, let's change things. Let's get us in a big circle. So we're in a big group. So we're all looking at each other and we're all not looking at the back of each other's heads and and we're trying to talk and get people to pray. And when I just mentioned putting us in a group, some of you are getting ready to have a panic attack. They hate it. I I, I just hate that. Why? I I, I don't know. I just, I, I, when I, you know, I, I can't tell you. Last time we did that, had it all in a circle, watching the people come through the door. They opened the door and they would do this. And we didn't have enough chairs to make one big circle. So if you remember, we had two rows and that back row filled up like this. Why? I mean, what is it in us that has us so fearful of praying with other people? I even had some people beg me, please don't put it back in a circle. And if you do, let me know ahead of time. I I don't know. We tried so many different things. And so I'll, um, I'll say, we'll have some prayer requests. And half a dozen people will share prayer requests. And then I say, who would like to pray for those requests? And everybody breaks eye contact with me. Everybody. And when you call on somebody, now again, there's some people that don't mind praying, very few. But when I call on somebody, somebody here named Bob, we'll pick on Bob. Bob. And Bob's response is like this. I mean, I watch all this. He's got his hand, and his shoulders do this. Stands up nervous as he can be because now I've got to pray. And I wasn't really listening to the prayer request, and so I don't really know what they are, and I've got to pray, but I want to come ha- somehow come across as spiritual, so I need to pray in such a way that everybody's going to say, well, that's really a good prayer because I don't want to stumble and not say anything because it makes me look bad. So I'm going to stand up and perform in my prayer life for other people, and that ain't what it's all about at all. And we all struggle with that. I struggle with that. I got so many questions about prayer. How do, we, how do we have a vibrant kind of prayer life? How do we, how do we meet the requirements to pray? Have, have my kids ever seen me pray? Have my grandkids ever seen me pray? Do they ever walk by dad's study or granddad's 
bedroom and, and, and see him on his knees interceding for his children or the nation or stuff of that nature. I mean, if our kids saw us do that, it would make a profound impact on our life. If you read a lot of testimonies of people we call spiritual heroes, they had parents like that that just, just moved them in a fervent kind of relationship with Christ. What do we do? Well, Lord, I don't know. I do know that you lived on earth like I do. I do know that you set aside and chose not to use your divine nature to experience the world like you and I are experiencing it. You had a prayer life. What was your prayer life like? So we look at Jesus's prayer life. Let me just give you a couple of these really quick. Prayer life of Jesus, Mark 1, 35 through 38. If you'll follow the first part of this chapter, it's a busy day. Busy day. Goes in a synagogue, heals somebody, everybody chases him out of that. Goes to Peter's house. Peter's mother's sick, raises her from her sick bed, turns around, everybody in the town, the, 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 the neighboring vicinity, bring all these sick and demon-possessed people to Peter's mother-in-law's house, and Jesus heals every one of those. He's absolutely exhausted probably when he goes to bed, and it says, after a day of expending himself spiritually, now in the morning having risen a long while before daylight. But daylight is what, 6, 6.30? So we're talking about after a day like this, Jesus gets up at 5, 4.30, 4 o'clock, we have no idea. And he went out and departed to a solitary place and prayed. Out of everything that went on, the Son of God, after a really busy day, decides that he wants to get to a quiet place, can't do it in the house right there, doesn't want to be interrupted by other people, needs to regenerate his relationship with his Father. This is Jesus now we're talking about. And if he needed to do this, how much more us? And so he goes to a solitary place and prays. Rest of the passage. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. (laughs) I imagine Jesus going, why do you think I'm here? I need to thank you for interrupting my quiet time. But he said to them, let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. What can we learn about Jesus? And he got up early. Do you? I started looking at what Spurgeon said about prayer and what Moody said about prayer and what um, these other spiritual leaders, George Mueller, for example, said about prayer. And they said, if you don't start the day off with prayer, your whole day is handicapped, and your whole day will have a tendency of going south. And I know in my own life that I have certain things that I have to get done that are my, in my mind are non-negotiable. At 8.30, I must do this, or I've got to get in the car, and I've got to go to work, and I've got an appointment at 9 o'clock, and I'm not going to to not meet those things because those are important to me. So if I'm going to pray, I have to set my alarm a little bit earlier to make time for God because otherwise it's going to butt up against things that I have chosen to do. But if I choose not to get up early, if I hit the snooze button or I stay up late the night before because I'm watching some mindless TV show, that I never, ever, ever sacrifice anything else Everything that gets sacrificed is my prayer. I never call my boss and say, listen, I'm going to be a half hour late today. Why? Well, I need to get up and spend some time with the Lord, and I, I overslept, and I need to, I need to get, give him first part of my day. What? 
If you do that, you get docked a half hour or an hour. When you get there, your boss will be upset with you. You made a commitment to me to be here at 9 o'clock, and I expect you here at 9 o'clock. And so God always gets slighted. We'll push him to the later part of the day. Well, that works well, doesn't it? And then you get ready to pray at night, and you're so tired, at least I am. I'm so tired that if I don't pray with my eyes open standing up, if I have to sit in a chair or lay down and close my eyes, I'm gone. You ever been there? Wasn't the way with Jesus. And Jesus didn't let his prayer life compete with everything else going on around him. He went to a solitary place, a quiet place, his prayer closet, maybe just in your car to pray. What was the point of Jesus' prayer? One of them was he wanted to know what his father's will is. How, how can Christ not know his father's will? Same reason why you don't always know his father's will. Do you remember this in Mark chapter 14? He's in the garden now. And he went a little further and fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, this is what Jesus is saying to his father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. God, my will and your will right now are separate. I need to know, I need you to reconfirm to me what your will is. What like Jesus didn't know? But in that particular moment, he needed that affirmation. He often spent the whole night in prayer. Have you ever done that? Whole night in prayer. We find this in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, where it says that now it came to pass in those days that he went out to a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 of whom he also named apostles. Prior to that, Jesus has got this entourage that's following him, and it's about time for him to choose the 12. And it took him all night long in prayer to obviously know exactly the 12 he was supposed to choose. And then he went out and made this monumental decision. Well, if I stay up all night in prayer, I mean, I will, I'll be exhausted the next day. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I can't do that. You know what? If you work as a nurse or work as a policeman and you work a 12-hour shift and they say, I need you to work another 12-hour shift and you do that, you don't fall asleep in the middle of the squad car. You do it and you're real tired the next day. But we're willing to make those sacrifices for everything else except him. We find that Jesus prayed for those he loved. In John chapter 17, of course, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus' prayer life was the fact that he got up early to pray, that he went into a solitary place to pray, that sometimes he prayed all night long. They prayed for those people that he loved. He prayed that he would know his father's will. He agonized in prayer. I mean, when Jesus prayed sometimes, it was gut-wrenching. It was work because he's not just sitting back as a passive observer throwing out platitudes. What he's doing is he's there fighting with the enemy for the souls of those people he loves. Luke 22, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So much he agonized that an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. We sometimes forget that account. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. 
I'm in agony, but I'm not quitting. I'm in agony. Now I'm just going to push through the agony because my prayer is so important, so much so that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That is a documented medical condition caused by internal stress and just pressure that's going on. And it's what Jesus was struggling with. He agonized in prayer. He often prayed alone. Matthew 14, 23 talks about he went up to a mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening came, he was alone. It's like Matthew wanted us to know that when he went up to the mountain, man, he was there by himself. And then Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And we find that in Matthew chapter 6. I want you to turn to that really quick. And I just want to share, you, share with you just a few truths here that may help revolutionize your prayer life or at least help you pray with a kind of intensity and fervency that will get God's attention, meet the requirement in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Jesus, of course, is prior to this is talking about charitable deeds. When you do something nice, don't blow the trumpet. Don't let somebody else know. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. God will honor you. Just don't seek honor from other people. And then he moves into this prayer situation. Here's what he says. And when, not if, but when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They knew who the hypocrites were. Well, who are the hypocrites? Well, they're the guys that you see on a street corner wanting everybody to know that they're really righteous men. They stand on a street corner so everybody would see them and they'd raise their hands up to heaven and they would pray these long, elegant prayers to intimidate the socks off everybody else. I could never pray like that. I could never be like that. What an incredible spiritual guy. When you pray, don't be like them. All show no substance. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men, by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Don't pray for your benefit that you'll be praised because other people will hear you and say what wonderful prayer that is. I would never do that, Lord. That's exactly what we do. That's why we're afraid to pray publicly because we don't think our prayer is going to get the praise and adulation of somebody else. This person stands up and prays an incredible prayer using all sorts of grandiose theological terms. And maybe like Jimmy Swaggart, they could even cry while they're praying. And, and oh, Lord, oh, heaven. And, and when we're sitting here moved by their prayer, so intimidated by their prayer, that when the pastor says, anybody else wants to pray? Oh, not me. I can't beat that. I can't follow that. I mean, what I'm going to pray is like chump change compared to what that guy prayed, so I'm not going to pray at all. I can always tell when that happens. When someone gets up and prays this grandiose prayer, I know it's over. I mean, we're done here. I also have experienced the fact that when we have prayer needs, I um, have a prayer need with um, something that's kind of minor, but it's really important to me, but, but it doesn't really measure up maybe to everybody else. I'm kind of shy in saying it, but the person before me talks about the fact that their granddaughter has just been diagnosed with stage four cancer and are getting ready to go to the hospital and pray that this kind of thing would happen and moves everybody's heart. And then when it comes time for you to share your prayer request, do we? I, I, no, my mind seems so petty compared to that one. Not to God. 
Not to him at all. He doesn't gauge those like, well, Scott, that's a really good prayer request. I'm going to grant yours. And, and justice, that's pretty petty, dude. What's wrong with you? It doesn't work that way. We think it does, but it doesn't. What reward are we talking about? Well, the reward of having that prayer answered or the reward of having other people pat you on the back. Verse 6. But when you pray, here's what I want you to do. I want to make sure that you're doing this so you can be praised by other people. I want you to go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in the secret place. Pray to your father in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Why am I praying to my father in secret? So that I, I'm not even distracted by everybody else. I'm not even worried about what other people are going to think about my prayer. I can actually go into my secret room and pray and be just as honest with him as I, as I want to be. You know, maybe I'm mad at God. You ever been mad at God? I'm afraid to tell him that. Why? Like he doesn't know? You know, I'm really disappointed in God. I'm and, and, and you know, in my quiet place, I can share that, but I don't want to share that publicly because it may have a negative effect on somebody. No, no. Actually, transparency and honesty in prayer can change a congregation's life. We in the church in the West, even myself, are so enamored with the praise and adulation of other people that we sometimes don't seek the face of God. And it's never more prevalent, I think, than when it comes to prayer. I don't want to pray. Why? Because I feel uncomfortable. What does that mean? I feel uncomfortable. You know, I feel uncomfortable going to Carowinds and getting one of those roller coasters. But I do. I feel uncomfortable sometimes having a conversation with someone that I'm intimidated by. But I do. I feel uncomfortable when Karen says, you want to go to the Y today? And I have to tell her no again. I feel uncomfortable. Yeah, but we do it. We fight through it, except when it comes to prayer. Um, I, I feel uncomfortable. Well, pray anyway. Okay. <clears throat> Got to clear your throat. God can't hear you. <clears throat> clear your throat. And, and then we're thinking, well, what should I pray about? What word should I use? Well, what did everybody else say? It's not the way it's supposed to be. There's a freedom that comes with this. Seven. And when you pray... Do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. I know I shared this story with you before, um, teaching at this little youth camp, and there's a bunch of, I don't know, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids there, and we invited the director of missions from our local Southern Baptist associations to come down and to give a talk and to pray for the kids. And so I gave this evangelistic gospel presentation, and he gave this message, and at the end I asked him, would you pray? To a bunch of 8, 9, and 10-year-olds, maybe, maybe they were 11 and 12, just young kids, he began his prayer this way. I'll never forget it. Oh God, the omnipotent one, creator of the cosmos. What? What? You know, and the kids are looking at me, and, you know, it was like, it was like, dude, I mean, you don't talk to him that way when you have a personal relationship with him. I mean, and I'm not, yeah, I am dissing on his prayer. Uh, but the fact is, it was like, that, that was, I felt that was designed for us and his position, not for them. Do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, which means this, you pray, 
you ask, you believe, you're done. You're done. To continue praying. God, are you going to do this? I promise you said that you would do this, and I'm really praying that you would do this. Please, 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 please. A lot of that borders on lack of faith. It doesn't mean we're not to be persistent in our prayers, but if our persistence is based on our lack of faith, James has something to say about that. And it also talks about the fact that when we're using vain repetition, there's not much content to our prayers. You ever prayed for your nation? What do you pray about? I mean, what, where do we even start with, a, with something that large? Do we, do we pray about Tracy Philbeck and the mayor of Gastonia and stuff of that nature? Or we get more grandiose? Do we pray for our governor? Do we pray for the coronavirus? Do we pray for Washington? Do we pray against Nancy Pelosi and for Donald Trump or something? And what do we do when we pray like that? Did, are we overwhelmed with that? Do we end up just saying stuff like, you know, God, just, just change our nation and, and convict us of sin? Or do we say things, God, whatever it takes, whatever judgment you need to bring on our nation to bring our nation down to its knees, which you will suffer collaterally from that also, whatever's necessary, please do to, to bring us back to glorify you. Or, or what, How do we do that? Verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for the Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. Now, here's where the whole Lord's Prayer begins to take shape. What God is saying here is, I am sovereign, that I will take care of you. I promise to take care of you. I already know what I'm going to do for you. I already know what your needs are. I even know what your needs are more than you know what they are. And I knew yesterday what you're going to need today. So it's okay to ask because you're agreeing with me and you're gonna, you're, your faith is going to soar when I supply those needs, but you're not panicking out there. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because I, God promised to always take care of our needs if we trust his sovereignty. My prayers and God's sovereignty, it works exactly the same way when it comes to sharing our faith with somebody. If it is true that God chooses people from the foundation of the world and regeneration and conversion are things that belong, our election and regeneration are things that God does, and we don't even know about our salvation until justification, if God is the one that does that, why does he want me to still share my faith? Because there's a There's a partnership that goes on there where God has ordained the sharing of the faith and the preaching of his word and the hearing of God's word with this sovereign act of his where he consummates a relationship and brings people to faith. And you and I have the joy of being part of that, knowing we can never fail because God is sovereign. It works the same way with praying for your needs. God knows your needs, but when you pray for your needs and he supplies your needs, it's nothing but an incredible faith builder. True? In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does hallowed mean? Well, it means to, I mean, the word is, is one of the derivative of the Greek word, but it's sanctify, set apart, bring honor to your name. And so when we get ready to start praying, we have a tendency of going, well, this, this prayer is too short. I mean, I can pray this whole thing in 30 seconds. And even if I slow it down and meditate on each phrase, I can get this prayer done in, in like two or three minutes. I mean, what does it mean? And so people have said, well, this is just an outline. It's just a bullet point. What we'll do is we'll expand that to be able to get you to pray longer. The first person that I ever read a book that did that was a man named Larry Lee, 
30 years ago, he wrote a book called Could You Not Tarry One Hour? And Larry Lee was this evangelist. He got a bunch of people that met at some drive-in movie theater at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they just prayed for an hour. And the idea was, do you remember Larry Lee? The idea was just to pray for an hour. Well, how do we do that? Because we blow through all our prayer requests in 10 minutes. What do we do? Well, we do, do this. We hallowed be thy name. And so then he would take all these Hebrew names of God, you know, Jehovah Rohi and Jehovah Jireh and all that kind of stuff and talk about it. So we'd meditate on each of those names and figure out who he is. And it, be, it became just this picture of something that we expand in our prayer life so we can end up praying for an hour. I'm not sure that's what Jesus' intention was here. I don't think the disciples, when he gave them the model prayer, understood they were supposed to get their Hebrew lexicons out and try to figure all this stuff out. It's a great teaching tool to learn about the names of God. But remember, these are, these are just common men like we are. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray in this manner. And the key to this is nothing but God's sovereignty. If you will read this prayer, it has to do with his kingdom. It has to do with his sovereignty. It has to do with the fact that he is above all. It has to do with the fact that you are dependent upon him. He is your provider and that he is going to provide for you like he did Israel in the wilderness daily, daily, so that we are totally 100% committed and dependent upon him. The entire prayer focuses on those themes. Your kingdom come. Oh, man. All Jesus talked about was the kingdom. The kingdom. Begin the kingdom of God is at your hand. The kingdom of God is here. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a woman that uh, searching for a coin in her house. It's like a man, a merchant going out and searching for fine pearls. It's like this and it's like that and it's like something else. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. The prayer begins with kingdom. The prayer ends with kingdom. And yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When we're praying to him, we should pray for his kingdom to manifest. And his kingdom is bigger than our nation. Your kingdom come. God, you're sovereign. Whatever you want, as Jesus said in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. To what extent? As it is in heaven. We want to see heaven on earth. We want your kingdom. Lord, we want your will to be as powerful and as invoidable as it is on earth as it is in heaven, where you are in total sovereign. Is that even possible? God, that's our desire. Hallowed be your name. Glory be your name. Sanctify your name. And God, in addition to your name, which we are called by, we want your kingdom to manifest itself here. It's all about God's sovereignty. Not your will, not my will, but his sovereignty. So what do we pray about ourselves? It's really simple. Give us this day, today, not tomorrow, not next week, not our three-year, or five-year, ten-year plan, not who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? And what kind of job I'm going to have? And how many kids am I going to have? And, and worry about all the stuff way down there with retirement, God, and all, how I'm going to spend all my retirement. No. Give us just today. Just today. Give us this day. Well, what about this day? Lord, I, I'm asking you to supply my needs, just like you supply the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Give us this day and our daily bread. 
daily. <laughs> I'm always amazed at that, our daily bread. Not about tomorrow, not about storing up for another time. I mean, I struggle with that myself. To be absolutely 100% totally dependent on him. We are reading now in Matthew 6, 11, but if you go to Matthew 6, 33 and 34, it says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God, I will trust you tomorrow, tomorrow, but today, but you give me just today and just my daily bread. And when if I go to bed tonight full, it's been a great day. Amen? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. <laughs> Lord, forgive us the sins that we've committed. Because, because we're, we're committing, I mean, we're, we're forgiving other people what they have done to us. And if you'll read a little further down here, it says then verse number, when the prayer ends in verse number 13, look what it says in verse 14. It says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So out of all the clarification the Lord could have given on this prayer, this is the one verse that he focused on. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't know what that means. Can you explain that to me? Well, kind of later on, but not specifically. And forgive, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, why is that so important? Well, I'll tell you as soon as the prayer's over. Because if you don't forgive other people, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. James says, of course, the Lord never tempts us. There's, we won't get into it now, but there's a whole understanding of, of what this means. So that when you're struggling and when you're being tempted and when bad things are happening to you, you can't say, well, you know, God is punishing me for some sin I committed 22 years ago. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't lead us into temptation. He delivers us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, do you know how God delivers you from the evil one? You know how it's done in Scripture? It's really simple. You look at James 4, 7. It says, if you resist the devil, he will flee. Remember reading that? Do you remember what, re what precedes that? It says, submit yourself to God. I'm dependent on you, God. You are my protector. You are my provider. You are my shield. You are my buckler. You are, you are everything. I'm going to submit myself to you. I'm going to be enamored with your love. I'm going to have this, I'm going to be victorious in my walk. I'm going to have this spiritual armor on. And because of that, my submitting myself to you, that if I resist the devil, he will flee. I will be delivered from the evil one because I'm resisting him, not in the flesh, but I'm resisting him by the spirit who lives in me. Shared this with you last week. James 5, 16. Just so that you'll know, it's not just any prayer and it's not just any person who prays. That there are requirements. It's like, you know, on a football team, everybody doesn't start. Guys that work harder and show up on time. And this is what it says here. 
It says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. Okay. But is that promise for everyone? That if I pray for someone, they're going to be healed? The answer is no. Because it says it's the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. How important is sanctification? How important is personal holiness? It's vital. Because the righteousness is talking about here is not the imputed righteousness you necessarily have, but it's our practical righteousness, living in a sold-out relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. What would it be like to have that kind of prayer life? To have the kind of prayer life that, you know, when you speak to the Father about anything, that you know that you're praying with the mind of Christ, that you're praying according to his will, and you have the confidence to know that not only hears you, but will answer your prayers. That you have the kind of relationship with him that is all not just one-sided, where you talk to him and he doesn't talk back, or you try to figure him out by signs that you see, or coincidences, or fleeces, or stuff of that nature, and you're always in this disarray about whether that's God or my flesh or my wishful thinking. What, it would, what would it be like if when you talked to him, you felt his presence, that you were surrounded by his Shekinah glory, that he spoke back to you in such a way, not just occasionally, but all the time that you could, again, the example I've always used is you could feel his breath on your face when he was speaking to you. I mean, what would that be like? If it happened to us once, it would make us want to pray more. But if it, if it happened to us today and it didn't happen to us the next three or four days, we'd find that our prayer lives would kind of wane. But what if it happened every single time you prayed? Do you think that's possible? I mean, if it's possible and there are some people that experience that, then it means it's ours for the losing, that is part of our birthright, is part of our inheritance. And all we need to do is walk in the victory the Lord has already provided for us. Like these people, E.M. Bounds. Prayers outlive the life of those who utter them. They outlive a generation, outlive an age, outlive a world. So true. If you uh, study some of the great people of prayer, I mean, sometimes it's generations and generations and entire nations have been changed because of the prayer lives of just a few people. Leonard Ravenhill, do you know who he, he was? Great evangelist in the generation past. Leonard Ravenhill says, he wrote a book called Why Revival Tarries. You ought to read it sometimes. He says this, no man is greater than his prayer life. It was Leonard Ravenhill that discipled Keith Green. I'll give you some context here. No man is greater than his prayer life. So if I started with Karen and went this way, on a scale from 1 to 10, and asked you about your prayer life, it'd be a good indication of where we are. Charles Spurgeon. True prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is a spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. If we viewed prayer that way, I don't have to go to a priest for absolution. I don't have to go to a temple. I don't have to go to a traveling sanctuary. I don't have to do any of those things. I can actually pray and interact with God himself. And the Holy Spirit in me is helping me pray. And when I pray, I have the Lord Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. Man, if we really understood that and believed that, I have a tendency to think we'd be praying all the time. 
one of my heroes, Corey Tin Boom, says this, any concern too small to be turned into prayer is too small to be made into a burden. Wouldn't you agree? I don't need to pray God with the, biz, the heavy stuff, the busy stuff, because, I mean, the important stuff, because God is too busy to hear my prayers right now. No, it's not. My hero, George Mueller, man of incredible faith. Here's what George Mueller says. Let no one profess to trust God and yet lay up for future wants. Otherwise, the Lord will first send him to the hoard he has amassed before he can answer the prayer for more. Good point. Really good point. It's like, as long as you've got it, no need for me to provide. But once you're totally dependent on me, then God shows up in a powerful way. How about this one? This is the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. Last one. Be anxious for nothing. Coronavirus, loss of income, health problems, what's going to happen in our nation, potential civil war, Antifa, whatever. Be anxious for nothing. So what do I do if I'm not anxious for something? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And whatever your will is, I want to praise you for it. Let your request be known to God. And what happens if I do that? What happens if I quit worrying, I'm not anxious, and I just trust God and his sovereignty and his love for everything that I need? It says in the peace of God, which nobody else understands, which the world cannot conceive, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Are you worried about this? No. Why not? We're worried. Why aren't you worried? Well, I just prayed about it and trusted the Lord and his will be done. Well, you're just crazy. I know, but I'm not worried about it. And I feel peace. And I'm just resting in this type of peace that you can't understand, the world can't understand, but I can. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves last week and pray, pray, pray with fervency, pray with expectation, pray Pray like you are really entering into the throne room of a king and he and you had his undivided attention and he loved you like a son. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Next week, we'll talk about what it means to seek his face and see if we can't learn some skills to allow us to be the kind of prayer people that can, that can be used by God to turn this land around. Amen? Let me pray.